Good morning, everyone. Good to see you, everybody here. I know that I, I, I know that I probably really shouldn't enjoy this as much as I do, but um, <laughs> I have to say, I love the whole process. I didn't realize I was speaking uh, today until yesterday afternoon because we had the old schedule on the fridge and <laughs> I didn't look at the dates. I just counted down the number of weeks and so oh, I'm on the third week. Okay, great. <laughs> and then someone told me, one of our karma yogis said, oh, are you ready for tomorrow? And I said, yeah, what about it? <laughs> so uh, fortunately, I've, uh, it's, it's, it's been a tough week and a great week. Um, others really, I feel like, uh, poured a lot of stuff into my head and heart as she was slapping me around my room a little bit, trying to get me to wake up and, uh, and grow. So I'm looking very forward to these things. Still Standing is the, the name of the lecture this morning, and normally that's, that's a positive thing. You know, it's the image of a battlefield where everybody else has been destroyed, and you're the weary, battle-torn warrior stands up. <laughs> still here I'm still standing and that's kind of been my attitude toward myself actually in my spiritual life uh, you know in the monastery uh, <laughs> you watch a lot of a lot of people join and go over the years I've seen at least 10 maybe more uh, young men join the monastery and set their intentions uh, for realization and they put their eyes on mother um, only to leave for one reason or the other over the years and so in one sense, yes, that still standing is, is a great image and, uh, and a very satisfying one, but it's a very egotistic one. And it's not the ideal of spiritual life. The ideal of spiritual life is not to be able to stand up when you're 99 years old on the foot of the grave and say, I'm still standing, you know. It's to be completely devoid of self. It's to lay yourself completely down to surrender everything that you dreamed of, everything that you hoped for, everything that you focused on, everything that you thought was important, everything you wanted to do, you wanted to be, you wanted to own, you wanted to experience. It's being able to lay all of those things down and to enjoy peace. So I want to look into that. How? How do we get to that place? What is that place, first of all? We talked the last time, if you remember, about that inner grandeur, enjoying that inner space, that inner life. And uh, I started reading this fantastic book. We're going to study it next on our Wednesday morning class called The Inner Castles by St. Teresa of Avila. And uh, she writes marvelously, uh, beautiful things about her adventures to her realization and about the understandings that she has from that perspective. She says to us this morning, she says, the fact that the soul is made in God's image teaches us how great are its dignity, how vast is its loveliness. It is no small misfortune and disgrace that through our own fault, we neither understand our nature nor our origin. Would it not be gross ignorance, my daughters, she's writing to her convent, my daughters, if when a man was questioned about his name or country or parents that he could not answer? I thought about that dilemma for a moment, and it's a wonderful meditation. <laughs> 
Because what has happened is that all of us found the sunglasses that we were looking for when we were born long, long ago, and we've put them on, and we've never taken them off since. We've never taken a look at them to realize that they weren't our sunglasses. <laughs> we put on someone else's sunglasses, and we lived our life happily with it. But because we thought we had found them, we'd answered the question, we figured it out, we kind of knew what we were, we stuck with it, and we've kept them on. And so St. Teresa here is asking us to sit down and reconsider. Who are you? What are you? We immediately grab the things that are easily apparent, you know, like looking through the lens of sunglasses. We just don't see it. We just accept it as it is. But ask a question or two. What are you? What, what are you? Let's not even start with who are you. Let's start with what are you? Vivekananda says that you're simply a collection of limitations and restrictions. That that's all you are. I like this, I like that, I do this, I don't do that, I live here, I was raised there, I'm of this sex, I'm of this orientation, I do this for work. That's not what you are. That has nothing to do with what you are, really. Those are conventional answers. Who are you? Right now, thoughts are going through your head. What are they? Can anyone, and this is a real question, I, 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 I honestly ask you to answer if you know the question, if you know the answer, what is a thought? You're a collection of thoughts, a collection of ideas. You believe some things very strongly, but what is a thought? Where did it come from? You don't become aware of it till it's already happened in your mind. I have a question, someone says. Where did that question come? You didn't always have it. Where did it arise from? It occurred to you. Once you saw it, you you, you named it, oh, question, my, me, my question. I have a question, someone answer my question. But you don't know what a question is. You don't know what a thought is. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes to after it leaves the mind, after it leaves your field of awareness. And yet we very happily and very strongly say, I am, I exist. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Have you always existed? What is it that exists? Is it a body? Is it a mind? What is a mind? All those things, poke at them. Don't let anything go undetected in your life. You know, there's a, there's a very wrong reputation for religious people these days and that, that they're fools. <laughs> that they're people who have kind of buried their head in the sand and made up an imaginary friend and just kind of keep their fingers crossed that they are good people and get to make it to the goal by the time it's over with. That's religious people these days. God forbid <laughs> that that's a religious person. A religious person is, is one who doesn't stop looking until he's found, doesn't stop learning until he understands, doesn't stop questioning until he sees or she sees what she is, who she is, why, why this, why here, why now, who am I, what are you? It's a question to revisit, to answer, because I'm afraid if you're like me, you don't know. I've been now working on that question. The idea, the question arose only about two and a half months ago for me. What is a thought? As I sat there watching millions of them in my mind, it was quite troubling when that question arose because I hadn't asked that question in 54 years. It never occurred to me to ask that question. What is a thought? And what's troubling about it is two and a half months of thinking about it, I don't know. I don't know what it is. 
I don't know what it's made of. I don't know how it forms. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know where it goes. And yet I'm composed of it. I'm a sum of them. I take some of them and I touch them with the idea of me and mine, and as soon as I do them, they become action. And then when they become action, they become a manifestation of something. So I'm always manifesting something, but what is it that I'm manifesting? I don't even know. This building, you know, Swami A was sitting in a room somewhere, and the thought of this building arose. Its design, its beautiful structure, but he looked out the window, what was here? Trees, you know, which was a beautiful temple in itself. But there they were. But he took that idea, he said, ah, I've been given a task by my guru, Swami Swahananda said, create a center for mother here in Washington, D.C. So these thoughts swirled, and some of them he put his finger of me and mine, I, touched them. And that caused him to go and buy a brick <laughs> or to pick up a phone and call an architect. And then they began thinking. They started enjoying thoughts. What is this place going to look like? What's it going to represent? What does it become? And they came up with an idea firmly pulled out of their collection of thoughts. And they touched that with me and mine. Started an action and manifested the chairs you're sitting in manifested the podium that I'm standing at, manifested all the things that Swami A built to, to manifest Takur, to manifest Ma, to manifest Swamiji. So you're sitting on a thought in a room made of thought, in an auditorium of thought, listening to a lecture composed of thoughts, and still we don't know what one is, still don't know. So that's what Teresa is saying here. We neither understand our nature nor our or origin. And she's accusing us of gross negligence. Is it not grossly negligent to not be able to answer the question who you are, what you are, why you are? She goes on and in her book. She says, so I, I, I thought of the soul. She's going, she's going inward. She's looking at this idea of a soul. And she says, I thought of the soul as resembling a castle. That's because she lives in Europe. If, have you been to Europe? Most of you have probably been to Europe. I grew up there, and uh, we used to go castle hunting every weekend. Not every weekend, but every few weekends. We'd jump in the car on a Sunday, and we would just start driving until we found a ruin. Oh, there's tons of them there. And then we would park, and we would hike through the woods and up the hill. They're always on a hill, and uh, find this castle. And so Teresa obviously has had this experience. And she says that your soul, her soul, is like a castle. And she says this castle contains many rooms, just as in heaven there are many rooms, formed of a single diamond or of a very transparent uh, gem. She says, if we reflect, sisters, we shall see that the soul of, of, a, of the just man, sorry, that we shall see that the soul of the just man is but a paradise in which God tells us he takes his delight what do you imagine must that dwelling be in which a king so mighty, a king so wise, so pure, containing in himself all good, what kind of castle would he inhabit and delight to rest? Takor says that the drawing room of God is the heart of the devotee. 
Have you stopped to consider what kind of room you must be to be able to entertain the Lord? And not just as a sacrifice on his part, but as the manifestation of highest love on his part. What kind of room must exist in you that the Lord would want to come and inhabit it? Pure love, pure existence, a divine existence whose thought is the universe, whose, whose thought is all the glories and riches that we can ever imagine. Even faster than the snap of a finger, they are his. And yet there is a place in you that he chooses to dwell, chooses to live. Have you seen it? Have you looked for it? Have you touched it? Have you wondered about it? If you could take this and come to a place where you believe it, it would drive you mad until you found it. Takor says that if you put a, a, a thief in one room and you tell him in the next room that, the, that it's packed with gold, he said that thief will not rest until he's chiseled a hole in that wall to get to that gold at any cost, any effort. Do we have that kind of wonder about our inner grandeur, about this place that God inhabits, the place where our personality bursts into life? the source of all the impetus of love that we've ever felt, the place that service comes from, the place that honor comes from, the place that goodness, kindness, compassion, caring, respect, stability, security, isness. This place in you, a gift to you. You made no payment you didn't even have to ask for this one. Your gift within you. Let us find it. What do you imagine that dwelling must be? Nothing can be compared to the great beauty and the capability of a soul. However keen our intellects may be, they are unable to comprehend them as to comprehend God. For as he has told us, he created us in his own image, in his own likeness. As this would be, it is unspeakably more foolish to care to learn nothing of our nature, except that we possess bodies, and only to realize vaguely that we have a soul, because people say so, because it is a doctrine of faith. Rarely do we reflect upon what gift our souls may possess. So this is the invitation this morning. Reflect. Think for a moment. What is the glory of your soul? What is the wonder of this home of the beloved in you? It is touchable. Otherwise, St. Teresa wouldn't have written about it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have read, be reading about it. Those, those men and women who have touched this place, we know their names. We know who they are. History has not been able to bury them. Time has not been able to rub out their memory. Those people who have touched that which you are, those people who have found the answer to this question, who am I, what am I, history will never forget. 
It must be a grand thing. It must be an amazing thing. And to know that that's what you are. Certain books on prayer that you have read advise the soul to enter into itself. What does that mean? How strange. To enter into yourself. Am I not already in myself? Yes, you are. You've already got the sunglasses are on. But whose are they? <laughs> what do they look like? You know, one of, one of, my, one of the beautiful scenes that uh, Vivekananda describes is a little boy coming up to him after a lecture at a place, and, and the little boy says to, says to uh, Vivekananda, he says, how come I can't see God? How come I don't know where he is? And Vivekananda looks at him and, you know, bends over and says, have you ever seen your face? But do you know that it exists? And the little boy in wonder understood. Understood. You are that. You carry it with you. This, this beauty, this amazement, this glory, this wonder that has stamped the names of certain men and women on history never to be forgotten is in you. Is you. It's that which is keeping your body at 98.6 or roughly in that realm. <laughs> it's that part of you that, that keeps that heart going all the time even though you forget about it constantly. It's that thing that makes you breathe in and breathe out. It's something that Nachiketas called his sacrificial fire. It's your puja fire, your worship fire. It is the thing in you upon which you put all of the offerings of your day. Every thought that you happen to have, every piece of pizza you happen to have, I had to get it in there, piece of pizza that you've had, every piece of cake, every song you've listened to, every lecture you've heard, every beautiful flower you've seen, those are your offerings to the beloved. Have you been conscious of them? Have you considered them? It's very important because if we don't consider them, if we don't become conscious of them, we remain thieves. How so? How can I be a thief? How dare you call me a thief? If you look at a flower and enjoy its beauty and do not offer it to the one who has turned your eyes on, who has given you life and the existence you enjoy, who has placed his very image in your heart, if you look at that beauty and do not immediately hand it to the Lord and say, thank you, wow, that was amazing. And then to bend and look closer, my Aunt Elsie, I've mentioned her before, she, uh, she used to look at flowers when I was a kid. You know, I was coming up on a preteen, so looking at flowers to me was an, was an, was an eye-rolling experience. Like, All right. Because <laughs> she would stop at a flower, and she would bend over, and she would look at it, and she'd smell, and she'd say, Eddie, because that was my name as a kid, Eddie, come here. All right, NLC, come look at this flower. Yeah, I've seen it. No, 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 look at this flower. And I would play along, and eventually she would win me over. You know, she would say, look, there's a flower inside of the flower. And inside that flower, look, there's even another flower inside of that. Isn't that amazing? Isn't God amazing? That's what Aunt Elsie would say. To become aware of God, to become aware of the beloved, to not be a thief and just grab the flower and drop it off into some unconscious space. Oh, yeah, that was pretty. Give me another one. Where's the next one? Oh, yeah, that smells nice. Does that one smell better? You know, just going around, just 
you know, total, total cows in a jewelry store. <laughs> oh, yeah, where's the next one? Show me more, show me more. Stop living like that. That's how we live, isn't it? Ah, oh, one pleasure. Where's the next one? Is it, does it get better? <laughs> Is there more? Can I find something higher, something richer, something deeper? That's how it is. Not anymore. After today will be different. After today we will look and become aware. Brother Lawrence, who we're studying on Wednesday mornings, he said, it's said about him that God has given him a good disposition. And Oh, he's writing, I'm sorry, it's not about him. He's writing about a, a friend that they're discussing. He says, God has given him a good disposition and a good will. But there is in him still a little of the world and a great deal of youth. I hope the affliction which God has sent him will prove a wholesome remedy to him and make him enter into himself. It's interesting, Brother Lawrence, who's a seer, who knew himself, knew the beloved, walked with the beloved without ever forgetting his name, not even for a moment. That was his practice looks at this young man who's being afflicted. I don't, they don't mention what the affliction is. But he understands immediately that if there's an affliction in someone's life, it's because God is trying to get them to pay attention to something, trying to get them to observe something, trying to get them to become aware of something. Because life is about this journey. Sri Ramakrishna says the point of this life is to know God, to know your beloved, to spend this life in communion with him, with her, with that. To enjoy that presence. To eat and taste that sugar. Maybe you're one of the ones who wants to become sugar. That's another lecture. For us today, it's about enjoying sugar. Enjoying the beloved. So he says, I hope that the affliction which God has sent to you this morning... I hope it will prove a wholesome remedy for you and teach you to enter into yourself. As far as I can understand, this is St. Teresa writing, as far as I can understand, the gate by which to enter this castle, the gate by which to enter into yourself, is prayer and meditation. Awareness. Prayer and meditation, contemplation, thinking about it, wondering about it. Because I'm afraid as we grow older, this life becomes mundane. That is shocking. That the stars could become mundane. That the sun could be mundane. That you could be mundane. That people you know are sitting on the bus could be mundane. That a flower, that, that a smell, that a touch could be mundane. What a crime. What a crime. To experience boredom in the garden of the beloved. What a crime. What an ignorance that is. To live in a world of, of, of so many opportunities to serve and to not know what to do. Are you hearing nothing of your soul? Are you hearing nothing of its call to love, to give, to care? Have you become bored? Have you become hardened thinking that you've seen it all when you've seen nothing? 
become fat in your arrogance because you know so much. And in fact, you know nothing. Nothing. In all my searching, 54 years of wondering, screaming, crying, <laughs> banging on walls, wondering what is this experience? I know nothing of it. I know nothing but grace at this point. Nothing but grace. All the things given to me, I don't know where they come from. All the beautiful things I've seen and felt inside, I don't know where they come from. I'm still in wonder, still searching, probably because I'm an idiot. <laughs> M is sitting with Ramakrishna in a room and he says, since there is no unbroken happiness in the world, why should one assume a body at all? I know that the body is meant only to reap the results of past action, but who knows what sort of action it is performing now? The unfortunate part is that we are being crushed. So he's complaining about life like we, like I do. What is the point of all this? Gosh, this, if it's just a bunch of experiences and just a bunch of, what do we call the combinations of five, you know, the five senses, that everything that you enjoy in this world is just a combination of five senses. What is there in that? This emptiness, this cruelty of being. The thing that, 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 that unconsciousness that makes us sleep in the world. That, uh, that lack of awareness that makes us miss the point of all these things. That confuses us. That ties us up in ego with, constant, with a constant role of needs and tasks and goals and assignments and requests and demands. This unending work. What is it? So Thakur is quiet for just a moment. Ramakrishna sits there for just a moment. And his response to M, so M just, M says that. He says, you know, why take a body at all in this world? We're just being crushed. And the master says, this is a very odd answer. It, if, if, if it was not in the order in the book, I would never have assumed this was the answer to his question. If a pea falls into filth, it grows into a pea plant nonetheless. <laughs> okay. What are you, where are you coming from on that? Don't get it. So ask Thakur, ask God, what is the point of this world? If the body is just there to burn up past karmas, and I don't know what kind of karma it's creating now, no happiness lasts, everything is temporary, everything that I look for, as soon as I eat, I have to go buy more groceries. You know, As soon as I make my bed, I have to climb into it and mess it up again. What is the point of this round robin? You know, I'm sitting on a planet that's spinning and going nowhere, traveling around a sun, spinning around it, you know, every year, and a sun that I hope God only knows where the sun's going, you know, but we're following, you know, we'll go along. What's the point of all this? Why am I being dragged into all this? If a pea falls into filth, it grows into a pea plant nonetheless. What is that saying? It's saying there's something in you something that's meant to germinate, something that's meant to expand, something that's meant to grow, something that you don't understand, something that you won't know the processes of, something that you won't comprehend, something that you won't know where it begins and where it ends, but something that will happen in front of you, something beautiful, 
that will then give birth to a thousand more peas, a thousand more opportunities of something beautiful to sprout. He says, yes, in the middle of this world, this mundane, boring, overworked, loud, mean, (laughs) cruel, unbelievably vicious world, in this manure is you, meant to sprout, meant to grow, meant to become pure love, unconditioned, meant to be pure intelligence without limit, meant to be the experience of absolute existence, absolute being. M responds with, a, with an equally puzzling statement, but there are still the eight bonds. <laughs> the master says, they are not eight bonds, but eight fetters. But what if they are? These fetters fall off in a moment by the grace of God. Do you know what it is like? Suppose a room has been kept dark a thousand years. The moment a man brings light into it, the darkness vanishes, not little by little. Haven't you seen the magician's feet? He takes a string with many knots and ties one end to something, keeping the other in his hand. Then he shakes the string once or twice, and immediately all the knots come undone. But another man cannot untie the knots however he may try. All the knots of ignorance come undone in the twinkling of an eye, through grace, through the teacher's grace. Be amazed. (laughs) I'm going to try this. I learned this when I was a little kid, so you'll have to endure me. I'm going to take the string, and I'm going to tie it in three, two places, in in a... uh, very much like a, uh, so see there, and we'll go through there, one loop through a second loop, and tie this string to itself. For those of you who are watching the live stream, the audience is going crazy right now. <laughs> they are amazed. So we've got two loops going th- through these two loops. So now I'm going to cut them again so that it's one solid piece of string so they're not looping through each other so I will take this piece of string and cut it and then I will take this piece of string and I will cut it so the loops no longer go through each other and then hold it out and you've got three pieces of string right and now Takor says if you shake it once or twice we do something once or twice anyway we got to do this and then take Takra's blessing. Okay, Takra, you said this was going to work. And we shake it once, you said, or maybe twice. And then, boom, ta-da, one piece. The roar is deafening. The roar is deafening. Now, why, why would I go through the effort of doing that? Here's the two little knots, by the way, right there. Now, uh, you see, when, when, you, when you do a piece of magic, and since Takor pointed to it, I thought it might be rich somehow to see it and watch it happen. To someone who doesn't understand what happened, you could clap, right? Wow, what an amazing thing that is. 
that's what this world is. You know, it's like, boom, we don't know what's going on. Wow, everything is just cool. Just, wow, that's far out. But when you understand it, when you know its nature, when you know what happens, then it's not a trick. It's entertainment. It's enjoyable. But it's not magic anymore, you know, in that sense. So Thakur is giving us a very interesting clue here about our practice. Our practice is not about achieving. It's not about doing. There's a reason they call it realization. So when I tell you, gosh, consider your soul. Consider the fact that we haven't paid attention, that we don't know who we are and what we are. The response isn't exhaustion, like, oh, God, now what do I have to do? <laughs> oh, renunciation. Oh, good Lord, not that. Oh, discrimination. Oh, I keep forgetting. All this, it's like this task that's there. We feel overwhelmed. We feel burdened. You know, you come into the shrine to do your meditation, and you're like, oh, God, I'm just going to do 45 minutes today. I've got a lot of things to do, or just 45 minutes. You know, this is our attitude. These are, this is the feeling that we have. Why? Because we think we have to do something. We think that we have to create something or get somewhere or build something huge and pick up a lot of bricks and do a lot of work and sweat it out. And maybe in 25 years, maybe in 50 years, I'll be spiritual. Maybe. Thakur said that's not true. That's, that's looking at the string with the three knots and thinking, oh God, how are we ever going to untie those? He says it's by grace that you enjoy these things. It's by grace that you enjoy these things. And our God, Brother Lawrence says, is a God of infinite grace. Now, we mentioned in our last lecture that in order to enjoy infinite grace, you need what? Anybody know? To enjoy infinite grace, you need infinite humility. What does that mean? That means you have to stop being the one who's going to be the last man standing. I'm going to do great meditation. I'm going to read for 10 days straight. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. Uh, that's not the way. Takor says, this is you. You're the one with the soul. You are that soul. You don't have to run and get one. You have to go borrow someone's or find one. It is you. And the way that you enter into that is by knowing that it's there, by faith. Faith is knowing that it's there. It's not knowing something that can't be proved. It's the faith of knowing your face. It's the faith of knowing you have one, even though you've never seen it. You've seen reflections of it, but you've never seen it. And you never will. Maybe. I don't know what it's like. Maybe there are stories that when they die, they float above their body and they look down. And at that point, you can prove me wrong. Until then, until then, you've got a face and you don't know it. That's faith. That's the kind of faith that we're talking about here. It's not believing something like pie in the sky. It's looking at all of the implicative, is that a word? Implicative evidence, all the evidence that's pointing at something. Everybody's talking to something. Everybody's looking at something. What is it? It's my face. It's me. It's the way I present to the world. So you look around, see the world like that. This is God. God is all of this. He's the sum total of all of it. So don't have faith in pie in the sky. Have faith of that which is being reflected in this mirror, the mirror of the mind, the mirror of world. 
because that's exactly what's happening, the saints say. They say there's no outside there. There's nothing out there. That's not what it is. It's your soul being reflected back to you through the senses. You're seeing yourself. You're sitting next to yourself. You're sitting on yourself. You're sitting in yourself. This is all within you. You are the glory that produces it. You are the wonder that is being reflected back to you. God is good and sometimes is bad. What can I know of him? M asks Ramakrishna. M says, can anyone ever know God? Each thinks with his little bit of intelligence that he has understood all of God. As you say, an ant went to a sugar hill and finding that one grain of sugar filled its stomach, thought that the next time it would take the entire hill into its hole. The master, he gets a little pensive, quiet. He says, yes, who can ever know God? I don't even try. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Takur says that he doesn't even try to know God. I read that. I've read that I don't know how many times. And just suddenly just popped me right in the nose. I thought Takur was all about knowing God. I thought that he wept bitterly, that he went crazy almost trying to know God. And out of his own mouth, he says, yeah, who can ever know God? I don't even try. There's a big hint there. It's not about building. It's not about building a castle in the mind of understanding, of arranging thoughts into a, a grander idea of knowledge. It's not about getting a PhD in Vedic whatever. <laughs> it's, not, it's not getting degrees in, in biblical missiology. You know, it's, not, it's not about building something of understanding that you can then look at and say, wow, what a glorious philosophy I'm enjoying. What a wonderful explanation for this inexplicable mystery I'm enjoying. Because why? Because you're still looking at it. If it's a thought, if it's a piece of knowledge, if it's a piece of work, you're still looking at it. And if you're still looking at it, it's not what you are. You haven't found it yet. You haven't become aware of it yet. So Takor says, I don't even try. I only call on him as mother. Let mother do whatever she likes. I shall know her if it is her will, but I shall be happy to remain ignorant if she wills it otherwise. My nature is that of a kitten. I only cry, mew, mew. The rest it leaves to its mother. The mother cat puts the kitchen sometimes in the kitchen and sometimes on the master's bed. The young child wants only his mother. He doesn't know how wealthy his mother is. He doesn't even want to know. He knows only I have a mother. Why should I worry? Even the child of the maidservant knows that he has a mother. If he quarrels with the son of the master, he says, I shall tell my mother. I have a mother. My attitude, too, is that of a child. It's that awareness of mother. You don't have to know all about your mother. You don't even have to know what she is. You don't know what she is because you don't know what you are. How can you know your mother if you don't know yourself? But think of yourself. Has anybody been lost in a grocery store as a kid or lost in a department store? Or I guess you can just be lost anywhere. 
But for me, it was department stores, that horrible feeling when you turn around and mom's not there. And you're like, ah, can you remember that panic inside, that horrible feeling? And then walking around sure that you're going to be kidnapped any second, you know, or sure that somebody, something's going to happen. And then you find your mother. You're never like, oh, thank God, I found that 28-year-old woman who married, you know, my father and who works as a, in a boutique. None of that mattered. It's just knowing you are in the company of your mother that all of your security comes from. You're no longer afraid of kidnapping or falling off a cliff or never being fed again or whatever a kid can imagine in a store. It's just knowing that mother is with you. That's what Ramakrishna is saying. That's faith. It's not knowing all of these things in the terms of thought castles. It's knowing these things as isness, as foundation, as something that cannot be doubted. That's what practice is. It's sitting in the arms of your mother and just being filled with security, filled with love, filled with light. That's what prayer is. Prayer is being in your mother's arms and nestling your face into the crook of her arm. That's what prayer is. That's what knowing God is about being with God, enjoying the company of God. So let's take, let's take a look at what this builds or, or, or what Brother Lawrence, how he went about this task of entering into himself and trying to find that which can't be known, of understanding something that he can't see, of learning about a face that he will never see. Brother Lawrence, it says, that he desired to be received into a monastery, thinking that he would be there to be made smart for his awkwardness and, that his, and the faults that he could commit, and that he would sacrifice to God his life with all of its pleasures. So he thought, you know, I've got to get in there and fix myself. He wasn't very smart. He was kind of clumsy, if you read his biography. He was always breaking things. He was kind of the fool everybody always pointed at. So he came up with this idea, I'm going to join a monastery. Maybe they can turn me into something. Maybe they can fix all of my faults. Maybe they can make me a man, make me what I want to be. And so he's going to go. He's just going to commit to it. He's going to throw it out. He's going to sacrifice God his whole life. I'm going to sacrifice my whole life. I'm going to give up all of my pleasures. I'm going to just throw it all at God. And I'm going to work really hard. It's going to be tough. He says, but the God had dis disappointed him because he had given him nothing but satisfaction in all of that state ever since. That God didn't fix him. God gave him bliss. God gave him love. God gave him meaning, value, that gem inside. But that God had disappointed him, having met him with nothing but satisfaction. That we should establish ourselves in a sense of God's presence by continually conversing with him. All right, so that's the first practice, continually conversing with him. How do you do that? Well, your thoughts right now are going back and forth between you, who you don't know, <laughs> who you don't know what it is, and the mind. Somehow you're watching them happen. Somehow they're communicating. So since you don't know what you are, you really don't know what they are, invite the beloved in, just in name only perhaps at first, maybe just an idea at first. And never let your 
thoughts be between two people. Always make your thoughts between three of you. The third one being God. Stop stealing. Your life is God's life. He created you to enjoy this world. He created you to manifest love and power, delight, glory, wonder, awe. He did it for his own fun, for his own enjoyment. You accidentally happened. You accidentally thought yourself to exist and decided to start jumping up in the middle like one of those little mole-bopping you know, games. <laughs> you kind of pop up and grab the thought before God gets it and take it as your own. You know, just like watching, looking at that flower. You look at it, instead of being like, oh my God, beloved, you are amazing. This is incredible. You're like, oh, it's pretty. Where's the next one? That's the thief in us. That's the idea. That's, that's what happened when Eve took a, a bite of that apple, the knowledge of, or that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what happened. She created a will separate and apart from the divine. That's what you're doing. Every time you grab a pleasure, Every time you grab an idea, every time you grab some love or some advantage in the world, without the idea of the beloved, without the consciousness of the beloved, you're stealing constantly, over and over and over again, stealing. Stop stealing. Stop it. <laughs> Thou shalt not steal. Don't do it. Take everything that's in your mind, everything that you experience, and share it with the beloved. That's what he's talking about here. He says that we should establish ourselves in a sense of God's presence by continually conversing with him, that it was a shameful thing to quit his conversation, that that's the problem. The problem is quitting that conversation. We think our problem is that we're not friendly, that we're not loving enough, that we're ignorant, that we, we can't do the right things, you know, that, that, that we're not holy, that we're not pure. We think all of that. That's not your trouble. Your trouble is that you've broken the conversation with your beloved. None of those things would have manifested if you had not broken that conversation. All of those things would have taken on a totally different color, a totally different wonder that would have been greater, grander, more amazing. For God is only trying to teach you how to enjoy the world, not that you should not enjoy the world. Establish ourselves in a sense of God's presence, continually conversing with him. It was shameful to quit this conversation, to think of trifles and fooleries, because that's what we do. What breaks the conversation? Nonsense. Nonsense breaks the conversation. It's not that you had something better to think of. <laughs> it's not that you had a bigger idea than God. <laughs> it's not that at all. It's some trivial, trite, little foolish thing that made you go wandering off and forget the beauty of the soul. Forget the glory of the dwelling space of God. To leave yourself and go into the senses. To leave yourself and go into the mind. That was the problem. That's your only error. Not the whole list of sins that you can break the consequences into. Not all of that. But the fact that you forgot the beloved. You walked away from the beloved. That we should feed and nourish our souls with high notions of God, which yield us great joy in being devoted to him. That we ought to quicken, for example, to enliven our faith. That it was lamentable that we had so little, and that instead of taking faith 
for the rule of our conduct, we amuse ourselves with trivial devotions, which change daily. Oh, see that? To enliven our faith, to feed your soul, to take care of yourself. Sit in the presence of the beloved. He's not telling you or inspiring you to do things that are going to make your life miserable. You know, all of that list of don'ts that we focus on all the time, we think, oh God, he's, he's out to ruin my life. <laughs> I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't go there, I can't do this. But that's what God becomes to us. He doesn't want you to do anything that if you knew the truth of it, you wouldn't want to do yourself. So take it on. Nourish your soul. Don't ignore it. See it, look at it, and then nourish it by thoughts of the beloved, by highest ideals, by service, by caring, by loving, by giving. Not these things that change daily. He says, as for what passes in me at present, this is after he's been doing this practice for over 10 years. He says, as for what passes in me at present, I cannot express it. I have no pain. I have no difficulty about my state because I have no will but that of God, which I endeavor to accomplish in all things and to which I am so resigned that I would not take up a straw from the ground against his order or from any other motive but purely that of to love him. So he does this practice for 10 years and it has inspired such an obedience in him, such a strength of conviction in him that he no longer has a will of his own there is no contrary will in him. There is only God. And that the most trivial thing he would not take up without the consideration of God. You know, I go down to North Carolina once a month and, and uh, you know, they, they have many ideas about what I should do and what should happen down there. And every time I'm like, yes, I'll talk to Swami A about that. Oh, I'll talk to Swami Sarvadevananda about that. And finally this week, one of the people down there says, aren't you an adult? Can't you just do something? <laughs> You know, but that's one of the designs of the monastery. It's like you're, you're trained never to do anything without permission, never to do anything without running it by someone. Why? Because it's a gross lesson, a gross lesson in what? In getting rid of your own will, getting rid of that ego that thinks it knows best, that ego that's based on changing things and never the same twice. Get rid of it, throw it away. Your existence as an ego has no redeeming value. That's why the saints, especially the Christian saints, when they talk about themselves, I'm nothing but a wretch, I'm the worst of the wretch, I'm a worm, you know, all these things. As Vedantists, we look at that, how can you say that about the soul? Well, how many of us are identified with the soul? You're not identified with your soul, you're identified with your thoughts, with your body. And the things that it's asking for are not beautiful. The things that it's asking for are not service and love-oriented. They are in their true essence. If you were looking at them from God's perspective, he can see the love in them. He can see that you're longing for him. But you're running after things of the body, things of the mind. I make it my business only to preserve in his holy presence, wherein I keep myself by a simple attention, a general fond regard toward God which I call the actual presence of God, or to speak better, a habitual, silent, and secret conversation of the soul with God, 
which often causes in me joys and raptures and sometimes so strong and so great that I am forced to use means to moderate them and to prevent their appearance to others. So this is the fruit of living in the presence of God, a bliss and a joy so great that you have to control yourself from laughing out loud on the bus, from busting into a scream of hilarity in an auditorium at a lecture. This is joy. Look at Thakur. Look at Jesus. Look at Buddha. The stories of their rapture and their ecstasy whenever they thought of the reality of that beloved But what does this mean to us? He says, I consider myself as the most wretched of men, full of sores and corruption, who has committed all sorts of crimes against the king. Touched with a sensible regret, I confess to him all of my wickedness. I ask his forgiveness. I abandon myself in his hands, that he may do with me what he pleases. This king, full of mercy, full of goodness, very far from chastising me, embraces me with love, makes me eat at his table, serves me with his own hands, gives me the key of his treasure. He converses and delights himself with me incessantly in a thousand and a thousand ways and treats me in all respects as his favorite. That's what you're forgetting when the name of God leaves your mind. That's what you're forfeiting when you run after the trivial changing things of mind and sense. This is what you give up when you focus on ego, on your own existence. In Galatians, the the Apostle Paul, I'm going to just go through this and we'll end. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes to us, my brothers and sisters, You were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out. You will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit. And what is walking by the Spirit? It's walking by the knowledge of the soul. It's before action, before personality, before thinking. It's what you are before anything manifests. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You see, as long as you are in the body, in the mind, as long as you dwell in that space, you're under the law. What is the law? The law is karma. Break the law, you pay. You get, you get your just desserts. Every action has its reaction. There is, no, there is no release from that bondage. If you live according to the senses and the mind, you subject yourself to the law, and you are responsible for it. And you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Live by the Spirit. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, 
hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of the beloved. But the fruit of the Spirit, those of us who dig, step into the, into the self, who come to know this room of grandeur and beauty within which the beloved dwells as the image that he is presented as us. To live in that space, to live in that consciousness, to live in the consciousness of this unending love, to accept this unending grace through unending humility. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. the invitation. If you live in the ignorance of what you think you are, that's the first set of things. A constant desire of pleasure, a constant desire of entertainment, a constant notion of something being needed to make you whole, something always necessary to make you happy, something always around you to make you feel secure something always there to build you up and to maintain this illusion of your existence separate and apart from God. Give up that need. Give up that desire to be separate and apart from the beloved. Give up that constant forgetfulness of your nature. Take these sunglasses off and look at them and say, oh my God, these aren't mine. I better start over, find out who I am, Find out what I am. Find out what I'm for. What is the purpose of all of this? This same Teresa wrote a lovely poem called Laughter Came From Every Brick. Just these two words he spoke changed my life. Enjoy me. What a burden I thought I was to carry, a crucifix as he did. Love once said to me, I know a song. Would you like to hear it? And laughter came from every brick in the street and from every pore in the sky. After a night of prayer, he changed my life when he sang, Enjoy me. Enjoy me. That's it. That's all. Enjoy your beloved. Enjoy that castle of the heart. Go into that dwelling place where there is no sound, no noise, no ego, no need. Go and sit with your beloved in faith, knowing your nature. I am love. I am intelligence. I am existence itself. I've never been born. I have never died. Will never die. I am that. Stay there, and beautiful things will sing from you. History will never forget your name. That's the invitation.
That's God. That's our beloved. Let's take a moment to try and sit in that space. can't let you go without a Hafiz poem. This one is called Not With Wings. Here, soar, not with wings, but with your moving hands and feet and sweating brows, standing by your beloved side, reaching out to comfort this world with your cup of solace drawn from your vast reservoir of truth. Here soar, not with your eyes and senses that turn their backs on the earth's sweet stumbling dance which needs you. Here, love, oh, hear, love, with your mouth tender and open upon your lover and with your heart on duty to the souls of rivers and children, forest animals and all the shy feathered ones and laughing, jumping, shining fish. Oh, hear, pilgrim love on this holy battleground of life where there are bleeding men who are calling for a sacred drink a gentle word or a touch from a man or god hafiz why just serve and play with angels they are already content brew your knowledge well for men with aching minds and guts and for those wayfarers who have gained the rare courageous thirsts that can never be relinquished until union Hafiz, leave your recipes in golden drums. Tie those barrels to the backs of camels who will keep circumambulating the worlds, giving nourishment to all of our tender, wondrous spheres. Oh, here, love. Oh, love, right here. Find your happiness, dear wayfarer. With your beautiful lips, your body so sweetly opened, yielding their vital gifts upon this magnificent earth. From that, we see that this treasure that lies within is not for us. It's for everyone else. That you're so beautiful, so lovely, so kind, so loving, not for yourself, but for everyone else.